So I had a friend a few decades ago who was actually a couple decades older than me when I knew him. And um, he was a very artistic kind of guy, actually made his living through music and art, sort of a very, very gentle kind of person, you know, very, very peaceful. Um, He lived in a neighborhood that was, from what you would think, a pretty good neighborhood, you know, never had any trouble with his neighbors before. And um, at one point, he told me that a motorcycle gang rented a house about two doors down from where we lived. And, you know, they had loud parties and all kinds of other things. Also, it turned out they were dealing drugs and were pretty negative, quite a negative influence on his neighborhood. At one point, he had an interaction, really, you could say a run-in with one of the members of the gang. And he tried to make peace with it. And the guy threatened him. And the next day when he saw the guy in the motorcycle gang, he was with another of his buddies. They threatened him again. Threatened his life. Threatened his family. Now, my friend doing the responsible thing went to the cops and said, well, they said they'll keep an eye on it. The gang continued to stay and do what they did. Negative influence in the neighborhood. And my friend did something he never thought he would do. Fearing for his safety and the life of his family, because he took seriously the threats that these guys made. He went out and he bought a gun. He had never owned a gun before in his life, and he never saw any reason that he would ever have to own one. He didn't want to. Fortunately, the motorcycle gang eventually left, and he never had to use that gun. But he thinks, and I believe, that he made a responsible choice. Nonviolence is the whole point of this message series. And it is one of my core aspirations in living my life. But it is not always easy to know how to apply the lessons, the teachings, and the practices of nonviolence, particularly when we live in a world that is so violent. I myself personally have never held a handgun. I filed a rifle a few times when I was at summer camp. I am not by nature a violent person. Guns don't attract me. But sometimes the world is not inherently broken, but it can be a broken place. And we have to know in those situations how to act, even when it's difficult. All throughout this message series, hanging like a question mark in my mind, and I know in some of your minds as well, too, has been what has been going on in Libya, our military action there. I must say that one part of me feels a very strong humanitarian impulse that the air cover we have been providing for the rebels might have averted a major, major humanitarian catastrophe and disaster. And yet, and yet, there is a whole other side of me that knows That some of that air cover that we are providing will most likely kill innocent people. Even in the name of something that we are told is a good thing. I'll be honest with you. I have not made up my mind yet. I don't know.
I don't know in this case. I hope, I hope it's like what we did in Bosnia in the 1990s where we averted finally a genocide through the use of force. Perhaps this will become like Somalia where we go in to defend and we find ourselves caught in something in which our people are killed and we do no good whatsoever. I don't know. But with every day that goes forward, I have more and more doubts. Maybe you find yourself on one side or the other, or maybe you find yourself in this situation that I am today with hopes but severe doubts and not knowing exactly what the right answer is. And if you find yourself in that place and you're willing to admit it, I want to tell you, good for you. We come from a tradition in which we are expected to ask questions. Not to commit a wonderful phrase. It's actually the phrase is wonderful. The words are wonderful. It's not a wonderful thing. It's called cognitive closure. Cognitive closure is this. We look on a world in which choices are ambiguous and reality is ever changing. And we find ourselves caught between applying different principles at different times. As I feel between that humanitarian impulse that we might be averting a disaster in Libya and the sense that we might be getting sucked into something that is only going to cause more violence and more destruction in the world. To be able to admit that is to admit that I am trying not to close my mind. Cognitive closure and the fear of cognitive closure leads to one of the worst things in our life right now, which has been the rise of fundamentalism. Fundamentalism derives specifically because the world itself is so big, sometimes so ambiguous, sometimes so fluid that people want an answer that says this will explain reality to you. And this is all that you need to be safe and have everything turn out the way that you want. Cognitive closure is also linked very deeply with violence. With seeking to impose our will upon the world. This is exactly what must be. Peacemaking is the opposite of cognitive closure. Peacemaking recognizes, nonviolence recognizes, that when we inflict a harm, individually or collectively, or when we even individually or collectively, in the name of a nation, take a life, we cannot take that back. To say that every innocent life we may take in Libya, and I'm not saying that we're going to, I'm just saying that is a real possibility. That person's life is just as important to them as our lives are as important to us. And unless we understand that, we will be complicit in violence. This is why violence is so destructive, because there's no taking it back. We can seek to make amends. We can seek to right wrongs. But we have always, with violence, torn just a little bit more of a hole in the fabric of creation. Violence and cognitive closure, they want to close down our relationship to this creation. Whereas peacemaking and nonviolence is always aspiring to be closer to creation, 
to honor that which is inside each and every one of us. Our great teacher Emerson talked about that each of us, it is intended that we can have an original relationship with the universe. He's talking about what Channing was talking about at the start of the service. An original relationship is to make good on all those capacities for flourishing that we were born with. Not that we have to seek for, but instead cultivate and share in a sense of stewardship. There's a wonderful uh, Yoruba saying, uh, people of West Africa, that no matter how far a river flows, it never forgets its source. To remember our source. The likeness to the holy, the likeness to the sacred within us and each and every person is to recognize that the aspiration spiritually really is to nonviolence, even if we can't always do it. No matter how far a river flows, it never forgets its source. I heard a great story. It's probably apocryphal. It's one of those things I catch every once in a while. People send me an email. It's going throughout the Internet. It's a story that goes like this. I may have told some of you this before. It's a story of a three-year-old boy who's just had a younger sister. And at one point, he goes to his parents and says, get out of here. Go. I need to to be alone with my baby sister. Like a real, like almost a newborn. Like, you know, like three, four days old. Just come home from the hospital. I need to be away. And at first, the parents are thinking, is this safe? Like, you know, is this like a little bit of sibling rivalry right here at the beginning? And so they say, okay, they, they shut the door and they allow the three-year-old brother to go in with his little sister. Now, they also turn on the baby monitor as well, too, to make sure everything is okay here. And they turn up real loud and they're outside, you know, listening. And they hear the baby brother say to his sister, I'm starting to forget about God. I need you to tell me again. Now, the cool thing about this story is it's kind of like a Zen koan. Because the exact thing that the three-year-old boy wants to hear, the baby cannot tell. It is like, in some ways, the first words of the Tao Te Ching, the great book of Taoism. That the Tao that can be spoken is not the real Tao. I think the point of this story is not that it can be told, but that the three-year-old is wanting to experience, in their own words, that original creation, that original relationship with the universe. Truly, little children can guide us to seek to have that intentionally conscious contact with the source of life itself, with creation itself, and not forget as the river of our lives flow forward and onward that we can remember what the universe has planted within us from the very day that we were born. Now, this isn't just a fanciful story. And this isn't just something that can make us feel good. This has demonstrated differences, particularly in relationship with the problem of violence. I want to tell you about a group called the Roots of Empathy. The Roots of Empathy is a Canadian group that works to understand and also train people not to be violent and to bully other people. One of the things that Roots of Empathy does is they go into classrooms. They go into classrooms, particularly at the age in which a lot of bullying happens, between like third grade and seventh grade, where kids can get really nasty and fierce with each other. And they've observed, and the research has shown, that one of the things they do is they bring in a mom or dad, or a mom and a dad, and their baby, and they 
lay them out on a green blanket, and they ask these pre-teenagers or teenagers to observe what goes on. Just observe the baby and the parent. Research has shown over and over again in this great program, Roots of Empathy, that it increases kindness and acceptance of others with the kids. It decreases negative aggression. It decreases the kind of mindset that wants to bully and demean and be violent towards another being. One of the person who, one of the people who sat in and observed what's going on in one of these Roots of Empathy programs said that she found that tough kids smile, disruptive kids focus, shy kids open up. She said in one seventh grade class, she found 12 year olds. I mean, is there another creature in the world more driven by peer pressure than a 12 year old? I found, she said, 12 year olds unabashedly singing nursery rhymes. And then in conclusion, she says the baby seems to act in a wonderful phrase like a heart softening magnet. There is something about being close to creation that opens up something in us and reminds us who we are and who we can still be and who we've been all along. But sometimes the river of our life goes through dry spells or rapids and we become tense and tight and we forget who we are. Now, there's, of course, and this is what I love about our Unitarian teachings before they knew about the science of it by saying we were born with this stuff. They were being absolutely right. There's a hormone that some of you may know about that is related to empathy and kindness called oxytocin. Some of you may know this. I'm not talking about Oxycontin. (laughs) I'm not talking about that drug that has wreaked havoc in thousands of lives. So, ooh, where can I get, where can I get my hands on that baby drug? You know, if you're thinking here today, I don't want to live. No, oxytocin is a naturally occurring hormone in our brains that we are born with. That is associated with deeper empathy, with our capacity for intimacy and warmth and caring and trust. When we choose ways to be close to creation, we are cultivating that which is already within us and wanting, wanting to come out. But that's the cool thing. We have to give it permission. We have to be in a position of allowing ourselves to be close to creation and to allow our natural natural gifts to flourish. Because I want to share with you right now is another study about the nature of empathy, and it's not real happy. It's associated with the University of Michigan, and they've been studying incoming first-year college students for decades now. And they have found that the most recent college entrance folks, the first-year students, that these students right now, and by the way, if you're raising one, I'm really not trying to be individually judgmental this is in the aggregate i'm sure there are obviously differences but that this generation the first year college students are the most narcissistic and the least empathetic that they have ever studied one of the things that they do in that roots of empathy thing is you know an infant can't can't lift their their head up off the ground they can't move yet so one of the things they ask the teenagers to do is get down on the ground and see the world from the baby's perspective 
sort of the tools, the roots of empathy itself is that we can see the world from another person's, from another being's perspective. That reality is not just in our own viewpoint solely. And by the way, that's one of the questions they asked in this University of Michigan study. How often do you take the time, because it's a function of time, how often do you take the time to try and appreciate the world from another person's perspective? Scores were very, very low on that. To remain close to creation is to remember to give ourselves time and to train ourselves day after day after day to grow into that likeness within us and to recognize that there are many things in our society, the overstimulation, the overexcitement, the overexposure, the need to have everything shrunken in time and space with our toys. These are good things. I'm not letting mine go. I'm attached. But this cannot provide me happiness. To shrink time and space is a wonderful thing in some forms of communication. And to shrink time and space is in some ways the worst thing that has happened to us as human beings. Because creation and our relationship to it is all about open time and open space. So, all right, you're thinking, how do I remain close to creation if I don't have an infant right nearby? If I can't get my daily oxytocin dose. Well, remember I mentioned that they put the the baby and the parent down on a green blanket. Those of you who have been doing the uh, spiritual spring cleaning practice online, I've been using a phrase over the last week or so. Keep it green. Some of you might know that. I referred to it in the service a couple weeks ago. Keep it green. Green is a symbol of depth. And creation. All of us know the truism. Want to clear your head? Go take a walk in nature. Well, now there's actually researchers who study this. It is called, and I love how social science invests things with theories, it's called attention restoration theory. Go take a walk in the woods is basically what it's all about. But it, true, it turns out that that old truism is absolutely correct. It is proving what our great teacher, Henry David Thoreau, said that an early morning walk is a blessing for the whole day. They have found that people who regularly, especially city dwellers, especially people who are not often exposed to things that are green and growing in a natural way, who regularly put themselves in relationship with nature, feel a decrease in the kind of attributes associated with aggression. Associated with violence towards self or other. An increase in the attributes that we understand as core to peacemaking. And the amazing thing is, even if we can't find it in nature. Even when there is nothing perhaps green around us. We still, if we cultivate it, can find that which is green within us. read a story recently about a maximum security prison in Alabama. Not the kind of place where you would think some really progressive social policy and experiment is happening in our world. Well, there's a mindfulness meditation program, a contemplative space, even in the same we would call ours here and Monday at our office, our contemplative space. There is a contemplative space and a maximum security prison in Alabama with some of the most hardened criminals. 
To opt into that program, you have to prove that you will sit 12 hours a day and simply be with the breath. And even with these hardened criminals, even with people who have done horrendous things, and also, by the way, people who have had horrendous things done to them, their aggression levels drop. Their behavior changes. It's not a magic pill. It is about the time and space invested of remaining and choosing to remain close to creation. It is also a demonstration of what Channing said, who was a Unitarian, but also demonstrating what our universalist tradition is all about, that we are born with the likeness to God. Channing said this likeness has its foundation in the original and essential capacities of the mind. I love that Channing sounds in this almost exactly like Thich Nhat Hanh says. Different traditions, same teaching. Every day we can have the choice to cultivate it. Every day we have the choice to awaken. Every day we have the choice to make manifest the power of creation that is within us. But we have to choose it. It's why spiritual practice is one of our core values. It's why one of our core beliefs is that in our essence, we yearn for connection with each other and with the source of life. In the Genesis story, the Genesis myth, and by myth, I don't mean to diminish it. It's a story. It's a myth of our origins. There are actually two stories. You know, one story ends, the creation happens, and God said it is good. Bang, end of story. And there's another story right next to it, which is... As some people call it, the fall. Adam and Eve and the apple and the serpent and the sinning and all that kind of stuff. That's a lot of that as a later gloss put back on it. There's no such thing as the fall in there. But it's a difficult story. And so some people said, you know what, is that, did the editor screw up? Why are there two creation stories that really don't job with each other right next to each other? Well, actually, I think a long time ago and far, far away, they decided what they would commit is not an act of cognitive closure. They probably looked around their world as we look around our world and saw so many people thriving and living lives of justice and kindness and peace. And then a whole part of creation that was destructive and violent and difficult. And they said, both are true. Which one will we choose? Which one will we, all of us, choose? Will we choose to see the potential for paradise in this creation? Will we speak against that destructive myth of redemptive violence? What's redemptive violence? Dirty Harry is redemptive violence. Clint Eastwood's early career is all about the myth of redemptive violence. That it takes one act of definitive declarative violence and it will put an end to what bothers us. Now, the amazing thing about the older, more mature, more thoughtful Clint Eastwood, Unforgiven or Mystic River, if you've seen those movies that he's directed, they completely destroy the myth of redemptive violence. We see how violence echoes from generation to generation to generation and puts barriers between ourself and creation. And how violence often just adds more destruction to where destruction already was. There's two uh, UU theologians, a woman named uh, Rebecca Parker and Rita Nakashima Brock, who 
wrote a book called Proverbs of Ashes, which is taken from the book of Job, that phrase. And it's all about deconstructing the myth of redemptive violence. And Rebecca tells a story in it, a story in it about when she was actually a United Methodist pastor before she became a Unitarian Universalist. She's now president of one of our seminaries in California. And she tells a story of living in a small town in the Pacific Northwest in which the kind of theology that she was raised with, she saw creating harm. There were women who came to her and said, my husband's beating me. What am I to do? And her theology had told her, trained her, and she knew it was wrong in her heart, that, well, Jesus bore his wounds, bear, your, bear, bear yours. She learned to reject that understanding of redemptive violence. It tells a story in the book about an old man named Bill who had cancer and was preparing for the end of his life. He said, called her one day, he said, I want you to come and hear my testimony. I want you to hear my testimony before I die. He said, I was in the Korean War. I was a sergeant. I was a good soldier. I led my men well. There was one time, one battle, however, where we had been out in the jungle, in the Korean War, for days. And my men were sick and they were tired. And my CO, my commanding officer, told me, you have to go into battle. And I pleaded with him. I told him, we will get slaughtered. We will absolutely get slaughtered and this will do no good whatsoever. And he battled with his CO and said, we should not do this. Please don't let us do this. Don't make us do this. And the CO then did the thing that if you've ever been on the receiving end of this, if you're a guy especially, is, is probably the, the thing you can do to make men feel most ashamed. He questioned his manhood. Basically saying you're not a real man unless you're willing to lead your men into battle. And finally he relented. And he did. And his troops were almost all slaughtered. And his best friend in the regiment died in his arms. His life, not physically, but spiritually, seemed to end that day. They booted him out of the army. He returned home. And for the next 20 years, drank his life away. Until he got sober. Until he started to recognize that love was still there and present for him. And he told this story to Rebecca Parker. And as he told this part, he started very gently just tapping his hand over his heart. He said, this is my manhood. That I can love. That I can grieve. That I can say I'm sorry. That I was right to question. That I was right to resist. I'm not afraid to die now. Because I know what love is. I know where God is. I think of Bill. And I think about my own dad whose own experience in the Korean War was so devastating that he still cannot or won't talk about them to this day. 
Not to me, not to anyone. Violence echoes and it echoes and it echoes and does damage to the likeness that we were born with. I want to end this message series where I started it a month ago with that story from Voices in the Family, Dan Gottlieb and Christina Neff talking about self-compassion and that hurting, bruised woman who called in and instead of trying to answer her pain and tell her it's going to be okay, Dan Gottlieb and Christina Neff asked her, put your hand on your heart or on the, do it with me, or on the heart of someone you love. All of us, let's feel here today that this original heartbeat of the universe is as present now as it ever was. This day we can choose to be as close to creation as any creature who has ever been. But we have to make that choice. And we are the ones who can make that peace. Amen. And may you live in blessing.